welcome everybody to uh, this UCLE's lunch hour lecture on how do we manufacture personalized medicines. My name is Gary Lai, I'm head of the UCL Department of Biochemical Engineering, uh, and I'm also co-lead of the UCL East Manufacturing Futures Lab, the, the MFL, which is one of the exciting developments that we'll be establishing on the new UCL East campus at the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park. The MFL itself will undertake basic research and training supporting the manufacture of next generation products, working particularly at the interface of novel materials, healthcare and sustainability. So with that background, um, our speaker today is Dr. Kasim Rafiq, who is an Associate Professor of Bioprocessing of Regenerative Cellular and Gene Therapies within the UCL Department of Biochemical Engineering. His presentation is going to highlight some of the future manufacturing challenges that we will address in the MFL, and particularly the case of personalized medicines. Kasim is a chartered engineer and a chartered scientist. Um, he's also a fellow of the Higher Education Academy um, and was recognized as one of the top 20 influential and inspirational individuals in advanced medicines manufacture for 2020 by the medicine maker. Um, and this is a very prestigious list that includes amongst it various Nobel laureates, multinational CEOs um, and leading scientists. So in his presentation today, Kasim will explore the challenges and opportunities of manufacturing advanced personalized therapies and the impact that these uh, regenerative and curative treatments will have on the, treat the treatment of unmet clinical needs. So Dr. Kasim Rafiq will discuss what these advanced therapies are, how they will revolutionize healthcare, and the challenges involved in the manufacture of these novel therapeutics at a scale and a cost that makes them affordable to the patients that need them. We'll have questions if, after Kasim's presentation, so please do submit your questions for Kasim on Slido, which I think you're all aware of, using the event code uh, hashtag UCL lectures and UCL needs to be in capital letters. You can start submitting your questions at any point during the lecture. So now I'll hand over to Kasim, who will start his presentation. Excellent, thank you very much, Gary, and, uh, and thank you all for attending. It's a pleasure to be able to, to join you today and to deliver this uh, UCL East uh, lunch hour lecture on how we manufacture personalized therapies. And for me, I think the question I always ask is, well, why do we want to develop new personalized therapies? And I think when we look globally at the challenges that we face as a society, we have to develop healthcare interventions that not only extend the quantity of life, but also extend the quality of life. And at the moment, what we're seeing is that doesn't necessarily correlate. As we start to have increasing years in terms of new healthcare interventions that can support that, we don't necessarily have an equivalent quality of life that goes with that. And so we see the rise and increasing of things like chronic age-related diseases, such as diabetes, cancer, and cardiovascular conditions. And this not only creates significant uh, challenges for the patient community, but also creates a looming crisis for global healthcare systems. And so ultimately, we need to have new therapies being developed. And from my perspective, advanced regenerative cell and gene therapies have emerged as a novel transformative therapeutic modality. They are transformative because they're designed to cure the underlying condition 
rather than simply treat the patient symptoms. With the potential to address previous unmet patient need and with the focus on curing diseases rather than simply treating the symptoms, cell and gene therapies will reduce overall healthcare costs. They will tackle the social and chronic uh, and economic effects of chronic age-related conditions, and they will lead the next generation of healthcare therapeutics. In short, this is an incredibly rare opportunity to improve both global health and global wealth. And ultimately, from my perspective, this will result in the overall transformation of how we deliver healthcare. The whole healthcare paradigm to date has been the traditional one-size-fits-all approach to medicinal delivery, i.e. we develop a new medicine and this medicine will be delivered to all patients, irrespective of their ages, their genders, their ethnicities, or any pre-existing pre conditions that they may have, which for me is a rather blunt approach to treating medical conditions, given the fact that all patients are fundamentally different. And what we're proposing with the uh, emergence of, of personalized therapies is a shift to a more targeted patient-specific approach, which we believe will result in not only safer therapies, but more effective therapies. And we believe this is what 21st century healthcare will look like in some instances, with this concept of vein-to-vein -vein manufacture, where we take the patient's own materials, in our case, the patient's own cells, we engineer it in the lab to fight diseases such as cancer, and we then re-deliver it back to the patient to offer a truly specialized, patient-specific, personalized therapy. This might sound like science fiction, but the video on the next slide and the work we're doing at UCL will hopefully highlight that we're actually now able to make this a reality. So on this slide, I'd like to introduce the context behind this. So this was a young girl um, back in 2010 and 2011, Emily Whitehead. Emily had acute lymphoblastic leukemia. This is a rare form of pediatric cancer, and it's quite aggressive in its nature. Um, the traditional treatment options uh, for uh, this type of cancer is to have a bone marrow transplant, uh, and where that fails is to then have multiple uh, rounds of chemotherapy. And beyond that, there really is no other option. So patients who have failed bone marrow transplant and who have failed uh, chemotherapy are ultimately left to die of their disease because there's no other treatment option available. And in 2010 and 2011, some pioneering scientists and engineers at the University of Pennsylvania were trialing a new type of personalized patient-specific therapy. And I'll leave the video to discuss more. Take one. Is it hard for you to say those words? We're trying to cure cancer. That's a, a really good question and why it's hard to say we want to cure cancer. We do. And uh, I think sometimes it's hard actually to think that you might actually succeed. Patients that we're treating on this clinical trial have absolutely no other options left for them. These are patients who are unfortunately uh, destined to die of their disease and in a fairly short amount of time. Emily Whitehead, 554. So Emma is uh, incredibly matter-of-fact about all of this stuff. This was a child who had had her leukemia come back twice. The parents were looking for a miracle. 
What we've learned how to do is train the immune system to recognize and then kill tumor cells. It's a procedure where we collect their T cells and they are infected with a virus that will genetically change them so that they will now see and react against their leukemia cells. And we actually use the HIV virus to do that. So you're taking the HIV virus and infecting healthy cells with it to help kill cancer? Yes. The virus has been engineered so that it can't cause disease anymore. But it still retains the ability to reprogram the immune system so that it will now uh, attack cancer cells. We call those modified immune cells serial killer cells. Each infused cell can kill more than a thousand different tumor cells. But the reality is the dramatic responses of cancer to new treatments are very unusual. We need to make it clear when we talk to a family that it may not work. Emma was given her T-cell treatment, and within a few days, she was very sick. She had breathing difficulties. She had blood pressure difficulties. We knew that she could not have gotten any sicker without actually dying. But then a remarkable thing happened. The T-cells were growing. They were starting to fight the cancer. Within hours, Emma's fever disappeared. It was like the calm after the storm. The clouds went away, and she woke up, and there was no leukemia. <laughs> when that child survived, it was, of course, an amazing uh, uh, event. So for me, I, I love to show that video because I think it highlights the reason we do uh, what we do. And it drives me in the research that, that I lead, but also those of my colleagues within the department. And when you see the impact that that had where a child with an otherwise would be an incurable condition is now fully healed. And this is now 10 years later where she has no sign of the cancer returning. She's in complete remission. I think it's now almost 10 years cancer free. Um, it shows the incredible power uh, of these therapies, but also the human factor. And, and in this particular case, here's Emily a few years later meeting the then US President uh, Barack Obama. And to give you a, a, an indication as to Emily's uh, character, um, the president, obviously she wasn't allowed to inform anyone where she was headed uh, when she was meeting the president for security reasons. And so the president asked her, is there anything I can do for you? And Emily said, well, yes, my school don't know I'm here today. Uh, so if you could write me a note to let them know I was with you, that would be great. And here's a copy of the note itself saying, please excuse Emily from school, she was with me. But that just shows the power of these potential therapies. So it's not necessarily science fiction anymore. We're able to develop these types of therapies 
So in essence, just to give you a brief overview as to what we're able to do, that's what's known as a, a CAR T therapy or chimeric antigen receptor T cell therapy, where we take the cells from the patient, we take the blood from the patient, we isolate the T cells, the cells that can cause uh, and, and kill cancer cells, but naturally they're not able to recognize this particular cancer. In order to allow these T cells to recognize the cancer, we can insert a new gene, which they don't normally express. So this is what's known as the CAR, the chimeric antigen receptor. So this new gene, this car will now allow the T cell, once it has this gene, to target and then kill the cancer cells. So once we have this gene and these T cells, we then need to grow the T cells, give them back to the patient, and these T cells are now able to then target and kill the cancer cells. So how is this entire industry shaping up, this, this emerging cell and gene therapy industry? Just to give you some perspective, the US regulator, the US FDA, had never before approved a gene therapy by 2017, despite a number of clinical trials. Yet within the space of 2017, within the space of about six months, the FDA approved three gene therapies curing cancer and certain forms of blindness. And this industry is now very much becoming a billion dollar industry. It sounds very exciting clinically. It sounds very exciting uh, from a scientific perspective and from a patient perspective, but ultimately what's the drawback? Where's the catch? And for me, the catch is in the commercialization and the manufacture. When you look at some of these therapies that are now available, these are products that are available on the market. That particular CAR-T therapy that I referred to is uh, brand uh, marketed by one of the companies, uh, Novartis under the brand name Kim Raya and is available in the UK via the NHS, but you can see the eye-watering price tag, $475,000 for a single dose. That probably just about gets you a deposit in London, I suspect, but, uh, but nevertheless, you can start to see the eye-watering prices that some of these novel curative therapies uh, cost. And so the question we have is, why are they so expensive? And ultimately, the expense is related to the manufacturing process, which accounts for over 70% of the cost. So we know scientifically that they work. We know clinically that they work, that patients are receiving them, they're benefiting from them. And many of these types of therapies are curative, but they're priced out, they're priced at such an extent that the vast majority of patients that need them are not able to access them. And that's where we come in because we're trying to focus extensively on the manufacture. But the question is, why is the manufacturing so difficult? And ultimately, it's because when we are manufacturing living cells as a therapy, it's pretty difficult to do that. Here's a very quick overview of, from a biological structure of the different types of medicines that we have available. So at the very basic level, we have things like aspirin, which many of you will be familiar with, which is a chemically synthesized small molecule and relatively small in terms of its, its size and nature. We start to move towards more advanced medicines, so peptide medicines or, or recombinant proteins produced by bacteria cells or, or animal cells, uh, so what we call recombinant proteins or monoclonal antibodies. So these are more advanced medicines. But as we start to think about treating some of the current incurable conditions, we need to start moving towards whole cells, and you can just see the whole cell kind of uh, looming over all other therapeutic modalities. To put this in another context, really it's the evolution from what I'd say is kind of the traditional horse and cart mode of transportation established thousands of years ago 
through to more advanced types of uh, automotive transport, where we start to see the development of engines and, and automotives, which uh, are operated using fuel and so on, to now where I would say where we are, where we're manufacturing human cells, is very much at the cutting edge, where we're looking at, you know, the equivalent would be in the automotive industry using electric batteries and electric vehicles. But what are the challenges involved in manufacturing living cells as therapies? This is an exercise I often do with my students just to get them to appreciate and take what could potentially be abstract concepts and make it a reality. And um, so this is an exercise I often do with my, my students as part of perhaps their induction process to get them to understand and hopefully it will address some of the challenges or, or elucidate some of the challenges that, that we experience. I, my, my wife and I are huge fans of some of the cookery programs that we see on TV, including things like MasterChef. And there's often a challenge uh, on MasterChef where the contestants have to produce a Michelin star meal for a huge banquet, let's say 250 people. Uh, and there's a number of challenges that go into that that are very different to producing a single uh, Michelin starred meal. So what are some of those challenges and how can they relate to cell and gene therapy manufacture? Well, firstly, we've got the challenge of the large volume. In this case, for the Michelin star dish, we have to produce over 250 covers. For cell and gene therapy, we have to produce masses and large amounts of cells uh, to deliver to patients. If it's patient-specific therapies, we have to look at precision cooking and plating, and in our case, precision manufacture. We're often following a recipe when we're manufacturing food or, or I say manufacturing food, cooking food. Uh, and when we're manufacturing cell therapy, we follow what we call an SOP, a standard operating procedure. And then there's a number of other challenges. So making sure we have enough cooking time or processing time for each of the steps, delivering to the customer on time at appropriate conditions. And in the worst case scenario, you get it late to the customer. It's a cold dish. In our case, when we're delivering cell therapies, late to a patient, it could potentially be the difference between life and death, or it could be the difference between a functional safe therapy and a non-functional uh, uh, therapy. So that's the, the, the challenges that we have, to we, we have to address when we're thinking about delivering to patients. Making sure we have consistency for each customer, and in our case, consistency for each patient, Having enough raw ingredients, ingredients and raw materials, that's always a major challenge and something we're certainly now facing in light of challenges around COVID and other supply chain issues. Ensuring hygiene, and in our case, ensuring sterility in cell and gene therapy manufacture. Having the correct tools and equipment is always critical. And something that I always you know, tell to my students that whenever you see any of these cooking programs, you always see that they focus on, make sure you constantly taste uh, your broth or whatever it might be to check the salt or, or sugar levels, whatever it might be. We do exactly the same in cell culture or cell production. Where we're constantly sampling or we have methods to check online in real time to see what the state of our cells is in. We have to have a multidisciplinary workforce ultimately. As I think for me, this is something I'll touch on at the end of my lecture, being able to establish that multidisciplinary workforce that can work in harmony to ultimately deliver uh, therapies to patients that need them. So what does the current CAR-T manufacturing process look like? Well, I won't go through this in detail, but I'll just touch on the general idea. We, as I said before, we isolate uh, the blood from the patient using a system called leukapheresis. We take the blood from the patient, we then isolate the specific T cells, and we then have to activate. And what we mean by activation is our bodies naturally do this. So when we're, we're sick with a virus or particular illness, 
uh, there are different mechanisms that activate in our body to activate the T cells so that the cells can start to rapidly reproduce in our body so that they can fight the infection. Well, how do we mimic that in a non uh, uh, body environment or in a, in a lab environment is that we have to activate the cells uh, using artificial mechanisms. Once we've got enough T cells and they've been activated, we then start to insert that CAR gene that they need to express in order to target and kill the cancer cells. We then go into the cell manufacture, and this is where we focus extensively on until we eventually get to the point where we can generate enough cells, we can freeze them down, we ship them to the hospital site, they are then uh, thawed or uh, at the hospital site and then delivered back to the patient. But ultimately, it's this cell manufacturing step which accounts for the vast majority of the cost. So in many instances, this can take anywhere between seven to maybe 21 or, or 30 days, just purely on this cell manufacturing, whereas every other process maybe takes a day or two at the most. So that's really where we've identified that we can certainly optimize and develop moving forward. So what are we doing at UCL to improve the manufacture of cell and gene therapies? And I've really tried to kind of tie it down to three key areas. The first is automation. So we've certainly looked at trying to remove the human operator from the process and trying to automate that. Now, why is that? Well, there's a number of benefits of being able to do that. The first is human operators, no matter how experienced they are, are always likely to introduce some level of variability, you know, whether it's a Monday morning or a Friday evening, you know, their performance may wane and, and, and change, whereas you don't necessarily get that with automated systems which are more consistent and precise. But from a more fundamental perspective, going back to ensuring sterility, often in any clean environment or clean room environment where we manufacture cell therapies, the, often the, the, the biggest contaminant in that room is the human operator because we naturally have bacteria or viral particles on our skin and, and so on. And so being able to remove the human operator from that process allows for a more consistent, but more sterile and ultimately safer therapy. So we're looking at developing automation tools and technologies. We're also very much focused on improving that manufacturing step I identified. So moving from these old technologies, which when you go back to some scientific research articles, they've been using what we call tea flasks. These are effectively plastic flasks uh, about the size of our hand, uh, which we can grow cells in. We've been using these technologies for well over 70 or 80 years. And the fact is in cell therapy manufacture, these are the technologies that are commonly used when manufacturing for patients. They lack scalability. They're certainly not scalable. There's very limited control capabilities. We can't measure things online and change things if needed. And more importantly, they lack the ability to be able to support large scale production, which is where we want, certainly want to move to. And so we're moving very much towards moving to things like bioreactors. We're trying to establish technology and are currently used for the production of a number of other medicines. And also the integration of things like artificial intelligence. We're now starting to bring together different disciplines so that we can start to think about how we optimize and develop more effective manufacturing processes where we can employ things like uh, machine learning and AI. So let me go through some of these as case studies. Let's start with automation in the first instance. So this uh, is a European project that we had from uh, 2016 and 2019, uh, where we we're working with a number of European partners, where we wanted to develop an automated manufacturing facility which had no human operator input for the production of stem cells. So the idea would be that we would have an automated system to collect the cells from, from a donor, from a patient, and have it transferred to this automated facility, expand in bioreactors, and ultimately deliver back to the patient. Uh, 
Here's a kind of a, a CAD model or, or schematic of the idea that we would have two robotic arms. In, in the middle, we would have a separator. So on one side where we had the cells exposed to the environment, which could potentially cause contamination, this environment would be to a higher level of specification in terms of air quality to avoid contamination. And we'd have our open in, uh, our other environment, which would be more closed. And therefore uh, we would have two robotic arms to support this. Now, I'll be honest, when we first started this project and we saw what we were trying to do, I was skeptical as to whether we would actually get to this stage. It was a three-year project, you know, a huge amount of infrastructure resource required. Um, and with all the ambition that we had, it's always challenging to see whether we can actually get to this final end stage or would we fall short. But I'm pleased to, to share that we were certainly able to get to the point where we could uh, manufacture the cells. And we, in our manual process and comparing it with our automated process, we had identical data. And we're delighted to be able to, to share that. And I've got a, a, hopefully in the next slide, a very nice video which shows the automation system in operation. So if I play this video, ah, oh, there we go. So it should start playing now. Um, so this was the, the bird's eye view of the system itself. And this is now actually in operation. So it's now at the end of the process where we've manufactured the cells, we've grown them up, and we're now transferring the cells into these cryovials. These are vials where, or containers where we can transfer the cells with a special solution so that we can now freeze the cells for delivery to the patient at the clinical site. So you can see the robotic arm doing all of the relevant uh, filling uh, and finishing. And so this is completely automated. We've set the process up from the outset uh, and the robot has now effectively over a period of seven days been able to grow the cells and is now completing the final end stage process where it's now transferring the material in these cryovials and ultimately will be uh, transferring them uh, into a freezer at the end of the process. So as you can see, it's, uh, it's transferring the material, uh, the cellular material in, in, the, in the vials. It's now moving it in between that grade D area that I mentioned that is uh, from the grade A, which is the clean area to the dirty area, but we're now putting the cap on. So we're not concerned at this stage about the sterility because they're now um, uh, tightly controlled with the cap. So there's no chance of uh, infection at this stage. So it's now moving into the hatch and the other robot will now uh, transfer those vials into these freezing containers. So these are the freezing containers where it lifts off the lid very carefully. It then transfers uh, the vials into each of these containers and ultimately will replace these back into the freezer. There's a little part of this at the end of this video in just a, just a moment that, that I love because it took a huge amount of engineering to do something very simple and basic. One of the challenges with these purple freezing containers is the lids are quite tough. Even for a human operator to get them back on, it's a difficult um, step to, to squish them back on. So we had to program the system to carefully just gently give it a tap at the end and make sure it's tight so that it could um, get. And that took a huge amount of engineering uh, just to be able to do that uh, singular step. And so there it transfers it ultimately back into a, um, a freezer, which can then be stored and then delivered to the manufacturing site. So that's kind of the, the first study around automation. I mean, we're doing a number of other projects in relation to that uh, and building on that work as well. Now moving on to the second aspect around bioreactors. So how do we go from these flasks, which are proven in that you know, many scientists or all scientists around the world would have used these tissue culture flasks uh, on the left through to these bioreactor systems, which are not necessarily common, but are used extensively in industry and suitable for scale up. 
So there were a number of research questions that we had to address before we could even think about doing this. The first question was, could we actually grow CAR T cells in these stirred tank bioreactors? And how would their growth compare to these traditional T flasks? When we spoke to our clinical colleagues or, or, or uh, scientific colleagues, often they would retort that actually you can't grow these cells in these stair tanks. The, the vessels would damage the cells and, and, and so on. So we thought you know, from the outset that this wouldn't be possible, but we wanted to give it a try. And we were pleasantly surprised. I'm not gonna go through the data on this slide in, in any great depth. What I would like to just show you is this black line here is an indication of the growth in the standard T-flask system. So this T-flask system here at the bottom, we have this, um, the, this black line where we're able to show the growth in the flask itself. But if you look at all of the other colored lines, uh, the blue, red, green, purple, and orange, these are all at different stirring speeds in that stirred tank bioreactor. And in all cases, we're generating significantly higher numbers of viable cells, somewhere between uh, 2 million to 5 million cells per milliliter. So for every milliliter of volume we have in our bioreactor, we've got somewhere between uh, two to five million cells, uh, depending on the conditions themselves. So not only were we able to show that we could grow these CAR T cells in these stirred tank bioreactors, ultimately they were better performing than the standard T flasks. So the next question we had was thinking about scale in mind is, could we do this now at the liter scale? The original studies we did in those stirred tanks were at the 250 milliliter scale, so about the, the size of a can of Coke um, that you get on those, those aeroplanes. Um, but could we now do this at the liter scale? And the answer again is certainly yes. So again, I'm not going to go into the data in a huge amount of detail, but between these three different uh, platforms, so operating at the 15 milliliter stirred tank bioreactor platform through to the 250 milliliter right the way through to the one liter system, we showed comparability. So we showed that in all three of these stirred tank bioreactor systems, we had comparable growth between each of these three different platforms, which was for, from our perspective, an excellent outcome because it shows we can start to think about scalability. The other core question was, can we reduce the manufacturing time? Now, let me give some context. I mentioned at the beginning that the, the cell expansion or manufacturing process can take anywhere between seven to maybe 21 or 30 days. And so in conversation with colleagues from, uh, from the clinic or who are delivering these therapies, the question always was, let's, how do we reduce that manufacturing time? And, and is there a way to reduce it down to ideally a day or two? Well, we're not quite there yet, but we're certainly very close. So in our process, in our standard stair tank bioreactor process, again, I won't go through all the data in a huge amount of depth, but if you look at this purple line, the, the standard uh, process in our stair tank would take about seven days to generate a total of 2 billion cells. And 2 billion cells is about the size of dose that we need to give to a single patient. So it takes about seven days to generate 2 billion cells. By developing a new process control strategy, and I won't go into the detail of, of what we did, but developing a new process control strategy that we were able to achieve by using these advanced bioreactor systems that give us that ability to improve control and production, we were able to generate the same number of cells, as you can see from the brown line, in almost half the time. So reducing the process from a seven-day process now to a four-day process. And we now have more exciting data, which I'm not able to share at this stage, where we've shown we can bring that even closer to the one to two day limit uh, that our clinician or clinical colleagues have set us. And so that's one of the key aspects from our perspective is how do we reduce that manufacturing time and ultimately the cost. 
And then finally, the, the, the last research question, which for me is probably some of the most exciting data that we've generated is, can we establish a manufacturing process that is adaptive to individual patients? For those who, who aren't familiar with medicine manufacture, once you have a process that is regulated by the regulator, you cannot change it. Uh, and in many instances, companies refuse to change it because it creates too much work for, for, for them to do so. But the idea is that when we're developing personalized therapies and patient-specific therapies, each and every patient is different. So if you have some patients where their cells grow slowly, is there anything we can do in the process to support or improve their overall production? And the answer again is yes. Now, the thing I love about this slide when I show this slide is that the cells and the, the growth of the cells that is represented by these three lines are all from the same patient. So this was a slow growing donor, as what we'd call it in our lab. So this was a, an individual or the donor materials from an individual over the age of 60 and had a pre-existing condition uh, in terms of the quality of the cells when it arrived into our lab. And in our standard tea flask and stirred tank bioreactor process, it would take about seven days to generate about 2 million cells per milliliter, which is kind of far below where we'd like to be. However, by using that process control strategy that we established for the previous study, we could take those very same cells. And in this blue line represented here is when we employed that process control strategy, where we're able to generate now a much higher uh, number of cells in a far shorter period of time. And so ultimately, it starts to allow us to think about, can we start to tailor manufacturing for individual patients to support the idea that actually instead of having a slow growing cell and we're just stuck with it actually if we do have slow growing cells what can we do to the manufacturing process to allow it to become ideally a faster growing cell and whilst retaining its quality and what i love to show on the next slide is car t cells in action so i've got two videos here on the same slide that i like to show first on this left hand side are normal t cells so these are not CAR T cells. These are normal T cells which do not have that CAR receptor. And in green, you've got the cancer cells. So what we're showing here, so the, the gray cells or the, or the blackened cells are the normal T cells and the green are the cancer cells. Now, because the T cells cannot recognize the cancer cells, the, the green cells, there's nothing that they can do. And we start to see the cancer cells spreading. So in this video here that you'll see, you start to see that actually the, the, the T cells can't do anything to the cancer cells. And after a period of over a couple of days, the cancer cells start to take over and they start to grow and multiply. And we start to see that actually the cancer cells are becoming very, very large in number because the T cells can't recognize them and therefore kill them. However, oops. Uh, however, now with uh, CAR T cells, so these are exactly the same T cells, but they now have that uh, CAR gene so that they can now recognize the cancer cells, which are also still in green, and are I able to kill them? So if you look at this video on the right, you can start to see the, T, or the CAR T cells surrounding the green cells, the cancer cells, and starting to neutralize them and kill them, and ultimately taking, uh, ensuring that there are no cancer cells left by the end of the culture. So that for me shows the power of these CAR T cells in action, the fact that they're able to target, recognize, and then ultimately uh, neutralize the cancer cells. And finally, onto, onto the last aspect around artificial, artificial intelligence. And this is the area that we're now moving to. And I'm working extensively with a number of colleagues who are experts in this space in terms of digital bioprocessing and digital manufacture. 
and with consortium partners uh, around Europe in addition to this. And this will be a core feature of the Manufacturing Futures Lab at UCL East moving forward. So how do we integrate artificial intelligence? Well, we've just been awarded a 10 million euro grant uh, that will run for the next uh, four to five years, focused on artificial intelligence driven decentralized production for advanced therapies in the hospital. Sounds, it's a complicated title, but it's shortened to AIDPATH. The idea is that we will be taking that CAR-T manufacturing process, establishing an automated platform that you saw earlier. So it's kind of combining the two previous threads of uh, automation and bioreactors, and bringing together the AI element so that we can then not only just have a standard process, but a, a process that is continually being improved to optimize production and have a fully functional demonstrator system in a hospital. And so we're working with partners in Germany uh, at the IPT Fraunhofer to develop the automation engineering. We have colleagues at UCL, uh, including Dr. Stephen Goldrick, who's working on some of the AI and digital bioprocessing. And we have colleagues at the University Clinic uh, and Hospital of Würzburg, where we will actually place this demonstrator manufacturing unit to produce personalized CAR-T therapies in the hospital setting by 2025. That's the goal. We're certainly making significant progress in that regard, and we expect in the next uh, two or three years that we can provide significant updates about the progress of that particular project. But fundamentally for me, and I think this is the other critical aspect and where I think UCL East plays a, a significant role, is that manufacturing in this industry is only half the problem. One of the challenges we now face is that there is a global skills shortage. This was a report by the Cell and Gene Therapy Catapult. Catapult is a publicly funded organization which supports uh, early stage development, translation and manufacture and connects academia and industry. And they conducted a skills demand report back in 2019. And what they outlined was that there is a significant skills gap. There's gonna be a demand or an increase of over 3000 jobs by 2024 with a number of these roles focused on bioprocessing and manufacture. And this is just from the UK landscape. This is now being mirrored across the globe. So we see significant issues in the US, in North America, in the Far East and so on. And there is an absolute demand for uh, skilled individuals who have the right mindset and ability to tackle some of these manufacturing challenges. So what are we doing at UCL and specifically UCL East to address the skills shortage? Well, in the Department of Biochemical Engineering at UCL, we're trying to address this from multiple levels and across multiple educational uh, stages. So right the way through from our undergraduate program in biochemical engineering, we have a minor that students can take in regenerative medicine manufacture, which exposes them to some of these core concepts and ideas. At the master's level, delighted to announce that we've recently launched a new master's program, which I'll share on the next slide, in the manufacture and commercialization of stem cell and gene therapies. At the doctorate level, for a number of years, we've been the primary leader in developing doctoral training skills and supplying the industry with over hundreds of graduates with, uh, and doctoral qualified graduates within this space who have the necessary bioprocessing engineering and the leadership skills to be able to lead in this environment. But it doesn't stop there. We're still very much focused on supporting post-experience industry delegates. We realize as 
numbers of individuals are transitioning from other fields within the biotechnology sector, or indeed other sectors entirely, such as logistics and supply chain, into things like uh, uh, biotechnology or cell and gene therapies, we have to support the industry in that. And we have a number of short courses that will be transferring, uh, some of which we transferring to UCL East when that launches as well. But I mentioned briefly the MSc in the manufacturing commercialization of stem cell and gene therapies. And so for me, this is one of the longest MSc titles we offer at UCL, but it's specifically worded because we know that the challenges are not necessarily or not limited to the scientific challenges or the clinical challenges. We've seen the clinical and scientific success, but the challenges are very much now at the manufacturer and how do we commercialize these therapies and get them to the patients that need them. So this is a program that started last year. We've now had our first cohort graduate and had some fantastic graduates who have already been snapped up by some of the key companies. Uh, and it's really designed to create the future leaders from a scientific technology, business and manufacturing perspective. And this will be delivered at UCL East uh, once the campus opens. And finally, to wrap up my talk, I just want to share a video about the program itself and some of the thoughts of the students who have been involved, and as well as the industry steering committee that contribute extensively to the program development. What excites me about stem cell and gene therapies is the massive potential that it has and the curative aspect of it. So when you look at traditional ways of treating things, you were treating symptoms, whereas now you're looking at this exciting new field that can basically cure you of your disease and then you move on with a normal life. And it just has so many options out there to help so many people. The Masters in the Manufacturing and Commercialization of Stem Cell and Gene Therapies is a new one-year program established uh, at UCL in the Department of Biochemical Engineering, which focuses on developing the next generation of engineers, scientists and business professionals to develop, manufacture and commercialize advanced therapies, particularly stem cell and gene therapies. We have a steering committee of industrial expertise that are going to commit time to teach on this program and, and give us their experiences in the industry and how they actually carry out their roles and what's required of them so that's going to be invaluable for any student that's looking to get into the industry and that for me I've been teaching for 10 years plus in higher education I've never had that experience it's a fantastic opportunity for students because we can put in the information that the experts in the industry are wanting to impart themselves. This is a unique program which gives students the opportunity to learn about science, engineering, manufacturing and the business side of delivering products to patients. The steering committee is really important because it's comprised both of the academic leaders and also industry experts like myself and together what we're going to do is to craft this course to make sure it's really relevant, the most contemporary knowledge is available to the students. I've been fortunate enough to be in the cell and gene therapy space for quite a long time, starting out as a clinician and then working to develop therapies for patients. And through that time, I've noticed how amazing it is to be able to really make a very big difference in patients' lives. And I'd really like to share that with new people that are coming on to lead the therapies of the future. But more importantly, I want to learn from them because it's only with their ideas that we'll really move this area forward. This is a great opportunity for the UK as a country, but the sector as a whole globally. And it has a specific need for skill. 
right across the, uh, the, the skill set for what is required in the industry. The good thing about this program is that we're not making the students ready for one kind of a job. On the contrary, we'll make the students be aware that they have different opportunities because not only, for example, we're going to teach them research in the lab, they're going to be doing cost analysis, commercialization. So when they will finish, they can go to a company and then within the company they can work in different sectors like legislation, uh, bioprocessing, analytics, preclinical and even commercialization. And not only that, we're going to make them explore more research. So if they want to go and do a PhD in collaboration with a company, they can do um, an NGD too. There's a massive impact of industry into this degree. So there's a massive connection, which as a master's student, so anyone in academy, that's what you want to have. You want to know where you're going to be working in the future. You want to see what they want, what they need, what, they, what their challenges are, and how you can learn about how to solve them. This program allows us to understand and appreciate all factors which go into manufacturing and developing these advanced therapies. So that includes ethics, regulations, and the initial manufacturing and commercialization. Essentially optimizing the manufacturing process, keeping in mind all of these factors, in order to create an advanced therapy for the patient at an affordable price for the healthcare system and for society as a whole. We're looking for students who are proactive and want to make a change. Students that realise we're currently at a tipping point in the global healthcare industry where we need new therapeutic modalities to address the chronic age-related conditions we're now facing. We want to empower, enhance and enable two types of future complementary leaders scientific and manufacturing leaders and business and technology leaders who can propel this industry moving forward and address some of the key challenges we face in getting these therapies to patients that need them. So, so delighted to be able to offer uh, that program at UCL East and the students uh, when they enroll in the program, when the program moves over to UCL East will have full access and make full use of things like the, the new teaching labs, as well as the manufacturing futures lab that will be established over there. And then just to wrap up, I mean, it would be remiss of me if I didn't finish on this because as much as I'm proud of the research that myself and colleagues have led within this department and the impact that we've had, for me, I think the biggest legacy that we will have in impacting this field are the individuals that we train, that we generate, and the future leaders that we're uh, creating uh, in the department. And so you know, in the last 12 months, we've had a number of individuals who have graduated from the department, either from undergraduate, postgraduate, uh, or doctoral level, who have gone into companies. And those that have graduated over 12 months ago and are now more senior are taking up very significant positions within their companies or organizations in a very short amount of time. So from my perspective, it's great to see the opportunities that our students and graduates are building on. So with that, I'd like to acknowledge my own research, researchers and research teams and, and colleagues and collaborators and funding organizations that have supported uh, this work. And I'd really like to close by emphasizing without key manufacturing innovation, the promise of these transformative curative therapies will not be realized and they will continue to remain agonizingly inaccessible to the vast majority of patients that need them. Not because the science doesn't work or because the clinical benefits are unproven, but because we have failed in addressing the fundamental manufacturing challenges and we failed in training the next generation to tackle these issues.
So with that, I'd like to thank you uh, for attending this lecture, and I'll be happy to take any questions. Thank you. Excellent. Uh, thank you, Kasim, for that um, I think, uh, very excellent and um, enthusiastic uh, overview of personalised medicines and their, their potential and their, their manufacture. Um, and, and also for highlighting some of the, the research and training activities we'll be undertaking within the Manufacturing Futures Lab at UCL East. Um, just a reminder to the audience that you can submit your questions for Kasim on Slido. Um, the event code for that, just as a reminder, is hashtag UCL lectures with UCL in capitals. Um, there's a number of questions um, already um, on Slido, um, which I will just uh, have a, a quick look at. Um, the first, there's two questions that I perhaps I'll, I'll put together, which is sort of very central to what Kasim talked about, which is, do these therapies have to be personalized? And how much do you have to change the process steps of conditions between different patients and different treatments? Excellent question. So I think, do these therapies have to be personalized? Um, yes and no. So at this stage, um, many of these therapies, such as the CAR-T therapy, are personalized because we cannot give one patient cells or, or take a donor cells from one, one individual and transfer them to another patient because of the issues around immunogenicity and immune reactions uh, in the patients that receive them because of the, the, the nature of the T cells. However, there's lots of work ongoing at this stage to see is there some clever gene engineering that we can do to, to remove some of the, the, the genes that might cause the immune reaction and therefore allow us to think about going to that traditional model of a single donor you know, being manufactured for multiple patients. But I also think that there is, when you look at the development of this industry and, and this field, the personalized therapies have demonstrated success. They've demonstrated good safety profiles. And I always think that we'll see a raft of personalized therapies come through that may then support future universal donor type therapies. So I'm very excited about what the future holds and do we have to change process steps? Um, in many instances we do, we, we're operating in a very different uh, manufacturing paradigm. So to, to put this into some sort of re relative uh, context, it's, it's almost say, saying to Apple that they have to manufacture you know, a million individual iPhones specific to individual hand sizes or ear size, whatever it might be. They may have some level of customization, but they don't have a whole raft of individual phones for individuals uh, as they need them. Um, whereas in our case, for personalized therapies, we are very much manufacturing on an individual basis. These cells will only go to patient X. And so therefore we ha have to, our scaling model at this stage is not scaling up, but rather scaling out. We have to have individual batch production for each, for each and every patient. Okay, so just to the, the audience, do keep the, the questions coming in. Um, I'll go for the, the next one, which is, you mentioned uh, that these therapies are, are expensive and you, you gave us an indication of the, the eye-watering costs. Um, how are these costs calculated and, and you know, do the pharmaceutical companies who are making them include the cost of development in, these, uh, in the price of these therapies as well as the actual cost of manufacture? Absolutely. So, I mean, it, it's an interesting one because I think we there's a lot of public discussion at this stage about how 
potentially pharmaceutical companies maybe operating unethically and charging very high prices for, for certain therapies and the disparities received from, from global regions uh, and so on. I think for, for these advanced therapies, what we're seeing is they are naturally expensive to manufacture. Are they you know, $300,000 worth of manufacture? Probably not. And, and we're, we are, but, but understandably from the pharmaceutical perspective, they're trying to recoup some of their development costs. However, these are naturally expensive therapies in terms of their manufacturing. So it's probably about closer to anywhere from 100 to 150,000. But ultimately with the work that we're doing at UCL in terms of being able to improve manufacturing processes, we believe we could reduce those costs, but also work that my colleague, Professor Suzanne Farid is focused on to try and focus on economic and cost of goods models so that businesses and companies can streamline their activities to bring that cost down even further. And I think the two go absolutely hand in hand. We have to think about manufacture, but we also have to develop more economic business models and cost of goods models. Okay, um, another question here is, um, uh, we've heard a lot about supply chains uh, during the, the last 12 to 18 months with the, the pandemic and we, we're all uh, aware of shortages on our sort of uh, um, supermarket shelves, but um, uh, is there a, a, an impact of these uh, supply chains and the lack of materials on the supply of these personalized therapies? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very interesting question. So we are certainly starting to see um, a number of impacts as a result of the pandemic. I think some have inadvertently benefited this field because I think we now recognize nationally the importance of medicine manufacture. We, we you know, we've now seen, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the emergence of and, and the focus from the government to think about resilience and, and developing that supply chain and manufacturing capability in uh, the UK. Uh, and that's something that I think is, is, is a significant benefit and positive. And many of the technologies certainly we've seen around the newer, newer vaccines, such as the mRNA, uh, Pfizer, BioNTech vaccine, many of those delivery technologies will be very applicable to future cell and gene therapies. In terms of the supply chains themselves, we are starting to see some of that effect, not only the research level, but also the manufacturing capability. But I think as time progresses, we recognize the importance of innovating, not only in the science, but on the manufacturing side. And I think we will start to address these issues on a both national and uh, global scale. Um, we've got time for a few more questions, but you mentioned the UK there specifically. Um, what is your view on um, how active the UK is, is, in, is in this area and how do we compare as a nation against what's going on internationally? Excellent question. I mean, we're certainly one of the global leaders and pioneers. Um, when you look at the clinical and scientific activity, I think we're very much leading the pack. Um, and I would say, you know, very much ahead of the likes of, you know, traditional um, uh, uh, leaders such as the US and so on. So from, from that perspective, I think we're, we're doing a phenomenal uh, effort. But I think it's matching that with the manufacturing capability. And that's really where the long-term sustainable value lies. Uh, and, but we are starting to see that shift. Um, so when we look at you know, the emergence of recombinant proteins and monoclonal antibodies, which is a billion dollar industry, um, 
many of the much of the work happened in the UK in terms of the scientific discovery and some of the Nobel laureates uh, were from the UK, but all of the manufacturing and the long term value happens on the west coast of the US in San Francisco, it happens in Ireland, and it happens in Singapore, the UK has very little manufacture, and the government were keen not to see that occur with cell and gene therapies. And so the government have invested uh, heavily, which is great to see in terms of these catapult centers and so on, but also um, it's great that we're starting to see the research council and the funding environment be supportive of this because ultimately these are in order to get these therapies to the patient we have to address these manufacturing challenges okay so the, the final question is perhaps from a, a young person's perspective so you know if, if you're a sort of 16 to 18 year old person you're you're fascinated by this emerging field what advice would you give them about how they can actually get involved in these personalized therapies in their manufacture great question um I think a number of things I, I, I would advise. I mean, myself, I, I, when I was coming through kind of the A-level A stage, my ultimate goal was how can I help society and, and what impact could I have, especially with you know, coming from a STEM background. And the natural response for many in that, in that environment is to think of medicine automatically. And I actually personally and genuinely believe that you will help more people doing something like biochemical engineering and medicine manufacture than you were if you were a medic. Because as a medic, you're working on a one-to-one -one basis. And in this environment, you're potentially helping uh, thousands, if not millions of individuals. And I think one example of that, that I think will hopefully consolidate this, is when we look at the discovery of penicillin and antibiotics. Um, it was a British discovery. I think BBC Two had a contest a few years ago as to what the greatest British invention was. And ranked number one was the, the discovery of penicillin and antibiotics because it's estimated to have saved over 200 million lives. And that's probably a conservative figure. But it took about 12 to 13 years for penicillin's discovery with Alexander Fleming for it to become an actual uh, therapeutic product that patients could could make and it would never have become a reality if it wasn't for the phenomenal work of individuals like Sir Howard Florey or Sir Ernst Chain, two names I guarantee most people would never have heard of but shared the Nobel Prize with Sir Alexander Fleming for the discovery of penicillin for their critical role in manufacturing and developing a process for the production of penicillin. So for me those who are interested in, in, in like I was many years ago in how we can try and have a significant global impact. I think we need to just look at you know, that example and the most recent example of COVID vaccines. What has been done in the last 18 to 20 months in terms of developing new types of vaccines, rolling that out, generating billions of doses would not have been possible without biochemical engineering. And I think for me, for any aspiring engineer or scientist, that is an exciting prospect moving forward. So thank you, Kasim. And as, as head of biochemical engineering, I'd have to agree with you on that last <laughs> answer. Um, so thank you, uh, everybody, for, for um, participating. Thanks again for Kasim for delivering the lecture okay. and the, the audience for answering ask, asking the, the questions. Um, just a reminder that the, the next UCL lunch hour lecture takes place on Tuesday, the 16th of November. Um, and the title is um, Artificial Intelligence climate change friend or foe uh, and that will be on the 16th of November between one and two. So again I'd like to at that point uh, thank everybody for their participation um, and uh, wish you goodbye and uh, the best, uh, best, best wishes for the rest of your day. Bye bye everybody.